0: Good afternoon and welcome to BibleQuest, the New York City, New Jersey, Philly edition. We do this webcast every Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. And we are delighted to have you with us. If you are joining us by the Facebook um, page, you can make your comments and uh, offer questions that you'd like for us to discuss on the webcast today. there in the comments section. If you are joining us by means of uh, BibleQuest.tv or the Zoom app, then you will have a QA and a tab at the bottom that you can use, bottom or top. I'm not sure where it'll be on your screen, but you can use that to send us questions that we'll deal with on the webcast today if we can get to them. With me is Joe Works, who works with the church in, that meets in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you today? I'm just fine, Jeff. Yourself? Well, I'm doing fine, too. You got to hear your daughter in a concert last night, didn't you?
1: Uh, yeah, a recital for uh, a voice class that she's taking at a local college. Very happy to have gotten to do that.
0: It's, you know, it's really, it's really an enjoyable thing to, to raise children and, and to raise them in the Lord and to see them grow up and um, get, develop their talents and their skills, but especially to see them growing up with a, a faith, uh, a desire to be holy and serve God.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. Amen to that, and uh, to, to think about whatever talents the Lord has given them, uh, how they are interested in using them to uh, glorify Him uh, and not themselves. Uh, that's great.
0: Amen to that. Well, we've got several questions that, that we're going to try to talk about today, and um, I don't know how many of them we'll get to, but the first one uh, we're going to talk about is uh, People talk about doubting Thomas. Joe, why do people talk about doubting Thomas? And then, Well, let me throw the question out there, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Thomas. The question that has been asked is this. Should Thomas be condemned for demanding to see the marks in Jesus' hands inside? Let's just back up a little bit. There may be some who are watching this webcast. We'd like to hope there are some who are watching this webcast who have no idea who this Thomas is that we're talking about or about the incident that we're talking about. Um, So let's just back up real briefly here and talk about who was Thomas. What's this all about?
1: Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I heard the phrase doubting Thomas years before I knew anything about the, the Thomas of the Apostles um uh, so, yes, uh, did, did you say you were going to ask the question? or? Um, or yeah, I, I read the question. Okay, okay, good. Let's uh, go ahead and,
0: and talk about this fact. Okay, so Thomas was an apostle. What's an apostle? I, I ran into a lot of people who, are, who confuse apostle and disciple.
1: Yeah, so the apostles, uh, word apostle means one sent forth, if I understand it correctly. And uh, the uh, disciples that were following Jesus from amongst that group, Jesus chose 12 specifically to become apostles, those that he would send into the world uh, with the primary task of preaching the gospel uh, and proclaiming the message that he had given to them.
0: So you're saying there were disciples who weren't apostles?
1: Uh, Yes, yes. All the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles.
0: Well, then what's a disciple?
1: Well, a disciple—the best definition I ever heard was a learned follower. That's it. That's—I think that's good. Uh, yeah, it's a—it's more than just a student. It's a student that's applying what they've learned. Uh, so they have been disciplined in the positive sense. Of that you way.
0: might be a student of Adolf Hitler, but hopefully, you're not a disciple of Adolf Hitler.
1: <laughs> exactly. I was—I was called a student in going through school. I seldom was able to put into practice the things that I was supposed to be learning. So with the scriptures, though, we want to not only know what they say, but put them into practice.
0: We, we have a lot of situations, really, when you think about it, when we use the word disciple today, you might be a disciple of a particular football coach. Maybe you coached under him as a defensive coordinator or something, and you learned from him, and then you've gone on to become a defensive or a head coach yourself, something like that. And you might be called a disciple of Bill Belichick, for example, something like that. Um, Okay, so there were disciples of Jesus, and we can be disciples of Jesus today. We can be learners who follow Jesus' teaching. Um, And there were many disciples of Jesus in the first century, but from them you say he chose 12 that he's going to call apostles.
1: Correct. And those are the ones that he sends out on uh, different occasions to go into the areas uh, preaching. Uh, Earlier, uh, often called a limited commission uh, where he sends them with specific instructions to go only to the Jews. And then after his resurrection, he sends them to go into all the world.
0: I don't, I don't want to be presumptuous here, and, and you may not think of Thomas the same way I do, but are you familiar with the Winnie the Pooh character, Eeyore? Yes. Which, yeah. of, the, which of the Twelve Apostles would meet, seem most similar to Eeyore?
1: Uh, I, I had not thought of the Winnie the Pooh series as being a sort of uh, a take on the gospel accounts, but but clearly the the kind of uh, uh, i I'm, I'm doubting that this is going to end up well uh, is the image that we have of Thomas.
0: Yeah, you know, it comes to mind back in John the eleventh chapter where Jesus is, has heard that Lazarus is sick, and he says, you know. He, he doesn't go immediately. He waits until Lazarus has died. And then he says, okay, let's go to Judea, the city where Lazarus lived was in Judea. And the disciples were concerned about going into Judea. Um, they didn't understand why going after Lazarus has already died. Uh, but, but Thomas says, uh, after, it's, after it's clear, Jesus is resolved to go. And Thomas says, well, let us also go that we may die with him. And I guess you could take that a couple of ways. You could take it, let's go and we can die with him. Or it can be that kind of Eoric resignation. Well, let's just go with
1: him and we'll die too. (laughs) Well, it certainly seems that that he is thinking that this is not going to end well for them. Yeah.
0: So then we come to the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And of course, his hands and feet pierced with nails. And the spear is driven into his side after he has died. And then his body is claimed and buried, but then he is raised from the dead. And on the day that he is raised from the dead, later that day, that evening, he appears to the apostles. There were a couple of apostles who were not there.
1: True. Uh, You you threw me for a second. Uh, I think there was just one. uh, Well, actually, there were two who were not there. Uh, yeah, one is not going to uh, be there at all. That's correct. Yeah,
0: he Judas, who'd betrayed Jesus, has now killed himself, so he's yeah. not there. Right,
1: right. The other one
0: who's still alive and is not there is... Thomas himself. All right, so let's read the account. This is over in John, the 20th chapter, and, and the question that we're getting at here is Thomas is going to express his doubt, and the question is, uh, is, is that... Um, Well, I've forgotten exactly how the question is worded. Should Thomas be condemned for demanding to see the marks in Jesus' hands inside? All right, so uh, let's read the account. John chapter 20, verse 24, after it tells us that Jesus has appeared to the apostles who are gathered in a room. says, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So then after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas is with them this time. Jesus comes, the doors being shut, stood in the midst of them, said, Peace be unto you. And then he says to Thomas, Reach hither your finger and see my hands and reach hither your hand and put it into my side. Be not faithless, but believe in Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. So now clearly believes there's more to this in the following verses, but that's the story that we want to start with. And so let's then address this question. Should Thomas be condemned for not believing on this instance, incident on this occasion?
1: Well, I guess one of the things that I would observe is that whatever we're going to say of Thomas, we would have to say of the other apostles just one week earlier. Uh, when we look at Mark's account in Mark sixteen, um, uh, you have uh, where Mary Magdalene has come back from the tomb, having spoken with Jesus, and uh, in uh, I'll just pick up in verse ten, she Mark sixteen ten. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so, if it's Thomas's disbelief uh, at that point, that all of them were in the same state. Thomas was just a, a week later uh, before he came to the conclusion.
0: That, that's a good point because oftentimes we think of the many. Uh, miracles that Jesus had done over the course of his ministry that these apostles especially had witnessed. Um, but even after all of that, the point that you're making, still the apostles didn't believe when they first heard. Um, there, there is this. I think about the miracles that that Jesus did and, and the, sometimes the seeming slowness with which the disciples, the apostles even included, came to faith in the sense, in the fullest sense, they should. And I think of the occasion that Jesus had fed the 5,000, and then that night, he's just done this huge miracle where he's fed 5,000 people with two loaves and five fishes. No, two fishes and five loaves, taking up 12 baskets of leftovers, more leftover than he started with. And uh, and, and the disciples, the apostles have seen this. And then that night, uh, they're out on the boat on the sea, and there's a storm that comes up, and Jesus comes walking to them, On the sea, and they realize it's Jesus after first thinking it's a ghost. And when they realize it's Jesus, Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me walk, bid me come unto thee up on the waters. And so Jesus says, Come on. And so Peter starts walking on the water. And then he sees the wind and the waves, and he, he gets distracted from his faith in Jesus, and he starts to sink. And Jesus does rebuke him on this occasion. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? On the other hand, in John 20, does it seem that Jesus um, responds to Thomas by saying, uh, you, you don't need any more evidence. Uh, I'm not going to give you any more evidence.
1: He seems to provide for him what, uh, what he needs to, uh, to have the belief that is going to, to help him go on.
0: There's a passage, the context continues in John 20 with a statement that I think a lot of people misconstrue. Verse 29, after Thomas has said, my Lord and my God, and he believes, Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. A lot of people take that to mean Thomas had to have evidence before he would believe. The best kind of faith is just faith you just have without any evidence. I think that's missing the point of this passage. The next verse says, Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the distinction seems to me to be not between having evidence versus having no evidence. The distinction is between having evidence where with your own eyes you see the miracle versus having evidence where you read the testimony in Scripture. And Jesus is saying to Thomas, you've had the privilege of seeing with your own eyes. Blessed are those who do not see with their own eyes, but they're going to read these accounts of these miracles, including the resurrection.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, In fact, not only is this then the second time that he's come to the apostles, But if he's condemning Thomas for this, it seems sort of odd that the next chapter then opens up uh, with the text telling us that this is now the third time that he's revealed himself to uh, these men. Uh, Jesus seems to want to do this.
0: He's abundantly providing whatever evidence is necessary. And there's a remarkable contrast to me. It seems remarkable anyway. The book of John begins in chapter one with uh, a little story, of, it's not at the very beginning of chapter one, but it's in chapter one. A little story of Nathaniel, who is uh, impressed with Jesus just because Jesus recognized Nathaniel as an Israelite in whom there was no guile or no deception. And Nathaniel, when Jesus says to him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, uh, Nathaniel responds and says, how do you know me? And Jesus said, well, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art King of Israel. <laughs> That's a remarkable statement made on what might seem very little evidence. And then you get to the end of the book of John, and you've got the story of Thomas, who had seen all these miracles but still had to see the resurrected Jesus and see the wounds before he could say, I believe. And yet in both cases, Jesus provided what was needed. And, and I think of all the different kinds of evidence in the Bible. And, and the Lord wants to give us the, the, the uh, reason to believe, and he's abundantly supplied all different kinds of evidences, and some are going to be more impressive to some people, and others are going to be more impressive to other people. The problem isn't really whether the Lord has provided sufficient evidence. The problem really gets down to, do I have the kind of heart that is
1: willing to believe? Right. And, and certainly as this story unfolds further, we have Thomas included in Acts 1 and 2. Talks about Peter taking his stand with the 11. So, you know, he's not rejecting Thomas or condemning Thomas. No, Thomas is one of the apostles in the book of Acts.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay, good. We have a comment here. Drew says, why do you think all the apostles have such a hard time believing that he was raised? Could it be that reversing death was such a hard concept to and to accept what do you think is is reversing death kind of a hard concept to accept
1: (laughs) it seems pretty permanent
0: doesn't it it does i mean whenever you've had a uh, a pet die and your child was upset um your child is upset because it's gone and even your child knows that pet's not coming back exactly yes so yeah it's a it's a tremendous thing but but it it, i think just to make this observation as, as difficult as it was for them to, to believe that somebody had overcome death, that Jesus in particular, even though they'd seen previous resurrections, um, they, went, they, they then went out and founded the church, preached the gospel, based on this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the underlying, underpinning, fundamental claim on which the gospel was spread throughout the world. And it succeeded based on such an outlandish claim as that. And why? Well, because of the evidence that was provided in terms of the miracles that the messengers were able to do. Um, I, th- I think that's a testimony to the uh, authenticity of the resurrection or to the, to the actuality of the resurrection of Jesus in and of itself. The fact that you could start a worldwide religion that would spread throughout the world and affect the world for the next 2,000 years. Based on the claim that this man was raised from the dead, right? Exactly. Good point. Try starting a religion today. Anybody, somebody who died just in the last few weeks, somebody famous who died in the last few weeks. Try starting a religion, claiming that that person has been raised from the dead, and you will get two or three nutcrack nut nutcases nut that will that will buy into that, but you won't have you won't have three thousand in in. Uh, seven weeks. You won't have 10,000 a few weeks later. You will not impact the rest of the world through the rest of history.
1: Good point. I don't know that I thought too much about it until this question of thinking about Thomas's um, observation in John 14, when Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and Thomas is uh, right before that. Uh, I need to turn back to the passage. Uh, in John 14, in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Yeah. Jesus says, I am the way. Uh, here again, that that sort of comes out. There's a hesitance in Thomas. I don't understand what's going on. And the Lord helps him to, to have the faith that he needs.
0: Maybe, Maybe in one sense, it's a testament to his faith that even though he doesn't understand, he doesn't get it all, he still is following Jesus. So
1: well, that's exactly where we all are uh, in, in truthfulness. Uh,
0: all right. Well, if you have questions, our viewers, if you have questions or comments you'd like for us to talk about, send them to us. You can send them through the Facebook page, and Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, will get those to us. We'll try to talk about them today. We've got another question here that we want to get to, and this goes back to Zechariah, the 13th chapter in the Old Testament. Does driving the false prophet from the land in Zechariah 13 refer to the end of divine prophetic utterances? If not, then what does it mean? I've heard preachers argue uh, in trying to show that we don't have miraculous gifts today, such as described in oh, was, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or various places in the New Testament. Um, I've heard preachers argue that Zechariah 13. Um, uh, talks about there'll be no more profit in the land, that that's uh, a proof text to show that prophecy would come to an end. I think that's what this question is referring to. So let's take a look at that. What are your thoughts, Joe? Hang on, we've got, we've got, a, we've got one comment here from a, a viewer just tied into what we were saying. Um, Bob Myhand says, it started in the very city where he died, talking about a religion founded on the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, started in Jerusalem where he died, maybe the least likely place that you could convince people that he was alive from the dead if he wasn't.
1: Anytime I've ever heard a claim of somebody being raised from the dead, it's always somewhere in South America or Africa. Right. (laughs) right. Not
0: a place I can easily go check it out. Exactly.
1: All right. Thanks for that comment, Bob. Appreciate
0: that. All right, uh, so let's talk about Zechariah chapter 13, Joe.
1: Uh, do we want to read any of it uh, for the sake of people understanding it?
0: I, I, it'd be helpful to me. <laughs>
1: okay, good. Uh, let me just begin in verse 1. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. His father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from me, from my youth. Someone will say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. <laughs> so the very next verse, we could read all the way through the, the text, but the very next verse is uh, Zechariah 13, 7, uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Clearly that's a messianic text, uh, referenced over in Matthew 26, I think about verse 31 or so. Okay, so we, we understand this to be talking about the, the time of the Messiah.
0: And yeah. God. Yeah. If we go back to verse one, the first verse you read, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. If we just think about the imagery there, you have sin, impurity uncleanness of sorts and there's a fountain what's the fountain they're going to do it seems it's going to wash away the sin and the impurity so when we start talking about the house of David of course Jesus comes from the house of David and a fountain being opened and it's going to cleanse away sin and impurity and when we think about the fact that the statement begins with in that day and so often in the Old Testament prophets when it says in that day it's talking about the future messianic age it sure sounds like we're talking about when Jesus comes, and I don't mean the day he's born or the day he's crucified, but that era that age when Jesus comes all right so we've got a messianic context
1: yeah, and so then you have this refusal of people being prophets uh nobody's going to to speak out um, uh, they're they don't want to be a part of uh, these uh of being viewed as the kind of prophets that they were having in Zechariah's day, I think. He's making a contrast. You've got these people that are coming out claiming all sorts of things, and in the house of David or in in the Lord's kingdom, you're not going to have uh, those kinds of people raising themselves up. Uh, in fact, they're going to be ashamed of that.
0: Along with two other things, unclean spirits and idols. And right. those are both negative things, ungodly things that are not going to characterize the, the house of the Lord, the kingdom of God, the house of David, you could say, uh, in a spiritual sense. Right. So let's go back where it says the land in verse two, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord that I will cut off the nations of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. If we're going back to an Old Testament perspective and we think of the land, we have to think of the promised land, the land of Canaan that the Israelites were going to come into. But the Old Testament journey from Egypt out of slavery unto a promised land is a type of the spiritual journey that we see in the New Testament, out of slavery to sin and coming to the spiritual habitation God has in mind for his people. In other words, we really can talk about the land as standing for the church and whether here in this world or here or in eternity in heaven. And and then there's an Old Testament passage that comes to mind. I'd like to call everybody's attention to it, Psalm 37 and verse 11. And Joe, what translation do you have there?
1: I I generally use the New King James.
0: So let's compare our translations, Psalm 37, verse 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it says, but the humble will inherit the land. And maybe some of our viewers will think, oh, that sounds familiar. But what does the New King James say? The meek shall inherit the earth. So you've got the meek shall inherit the earth, and that sure will ring a bell to some, some people, I would think. That's quoted by Jesus as part of the Beatitudes in Matthew, the fifth chapter. When Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth, I think he means the same thing as what David meant here in Psalm 37, 11, the humble inheriting land. The word can be translated either earth or land, and context is going to tell you which it is. But in the Israelite mind, the land was the, excuse me, was the promised land. But the promised land, in a messianic sense, represents the spiritual habitation of God's people. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 5. He's not saying the meek are going to conquer the globe. He's saying the meat shall inherit God's land. And so in, in the similar sense, it is in verse 37, in verse 29, when he says the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. What does the New
1: King James say in verse 29 of Psalm 37? Uh twenty, turn the page there. Uh twenty-nine is the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever.
0: Yeah. So so the New King James goes from using the English word earth in verse eleven to land in verse twenty-nine. So so then with this idea that the Old Testament promised land physically represents the spiritual habitation of God's people coming in Christ, that's what Zachariah is doing with it. So when he says there'll be no unclean spirits in the land, he's not talking about the physical land of Palestine. He's talking about in the church, in the body of Christ purified, washed by the blood of Jesus. There'll be no unclean spirit, no idol, no prophet. But the kind of prophet, and you've already kind of set us up to understand this, is the kind of prophet that goes along with an idol and an unclean spirit. It's a false prophet. For example... What did these prophets decide they'd better quit doing that they had apparently been doing in order to deceive people
1: back in Zechariah thirteen? Um, you've uh, to get back four. Uh, Yeah. Um. So, uh, wearing a robe of coarse hair to deceive.
0: Yeah, and and the, I I have a hunch, I have an idea, and I don't know if you'll share the idea or not, but why if in Old Testament times a a guy wanted to pass himself off as a prophet, he really wasn't one. He's a false prophet. Why he would put on a hairy robe? Thought?
1: Uh, Elijah.
0: Yeah, Elijah. That was kind of a unique look. It was unique enough that when Elijah's look was described to King Ahaziah, he immediately knew that was Elijah. So then later on it seems that some of these prophets who wanted to pass, or some of these guys who wanted to pass themselves off as prophets would do that. And and so then I'll make one other observation. In Zechariah 13, where it says prophets in uh, Zechariah 13, verse two, the Septuagint, which is the old Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, actually says pseudoprophetus or false prophets. And uh, so that's the way that was understood. So, Bottom line, I think it is taking this passage out of context to try to use it as a proof text to show that the gift of prophecy was supposed to cease. This, this passage is talking about people who weren't true prophets at all. They were false prophets.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and at the time that this passage is being fulfilled in the Messianic era, there are certainly prophets uh were prophes- prophets bef- during the time of Christ. There prophets in the book of Acts. You have Agabus and other men who were prophets, Ephesians 4. Or so- decades after Christ. Right. So it has to be the, the pseudo-prophets that's being talked about. But even that, they are, there were false prophets throughout the, the book of Acts and other passages, but they are not a part of the land or the kingdom of the Lord.
0: Exactly. Good. All right. We've got another question from a viewer. Uh, Randy says, in the New Testament, the phrase Son of Man is used 85 times. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 81 times in the New Testament, but he nor his disciples explains what he means by this. So my question is, why does he call himself the Son of Man? Uh, I'll assume he has these numbers correct. Uh, so, Joe, Jesus' disciples didn't explain what means, so it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> what does Son of Man mean?
1: Well, I've heard a couple of different ideas uh, on uh, that uh, thought. The son of just means to have the characteristics of. Mm -hmm. And so I think just to take the simple definition, he has taken the characteristic of man. Mm -hmm. Sort of the twist on that is, if he were just a man, that would just seem like an unnecessary thing to say. Uh, And so some have pointed out that him being called the son of man is really a claim to his deity but he's taken on the characteristics of man, but, but he's really not just a man. So I
0: thought that his, that has dawned on me just in recent years, and I really hadn't, hadn't put this together until just in very recent years, but now it, it seems obvious to me. Maybe you'll tell me it's not so obvious, but in Daniel chapter seven, there is this Uh, vision of these kingdoms represented by four beasts. And then there's the kingdom of God. It's similar to in Daniel 2, where you had the statue Nebuchadnezzar's dream representing four kingdoms that are destroyed, and then the kingdom of God is set up. But in Daniel 7, the four beasts represent the four kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, the Roman, and, and there's a court scene where God judges these kingdoms. He he brings down these kingdoms. He declares their end, and God's kingdom is going to be set up. And in this court scene, it describes uh, verse 13. Uh, and In the ancient of days, God is sitting on his throne. And verse 13 says, I kept looking, this is Daniel saying, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom. So on. Now, first of all, it says one like a son of man. And as you said a moment ago, son of, if you're son of something, then you're like that something. And so I think the point is obviously somebody who looks like a man comes before the throne, but then it says to him is given the kingdom to the Jews who are looking for the kingdom, the Messiah, the King. And later on in the book of Daniel chapter 9, we're going to see the word Messiah, the Lord's anointed coming, uh, being used. So when you have this said, there's one like a son of man, and he gets the kingdom. The kingdoms of men are destroyed, and the son of man, one like a son of man gets a kingdom. It seems to me, with that in mind, when I then go back and read the various passages where Jesus refers to himself as son of man, for example, in John 5, uh, God has given authority to the to Jesus to execute judgment because he is a son of man. I used to think what that meant was, well, he's a human, and so he can understand us. He's walked in our shoes, kind of the Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4 kind of point. I think now, though, the point is he is going to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man to whom dominion has been given. Uh, it's his kingdom. So I, I think that when Jesus uses the expression "Son of Man," he's using a, an expression that had come to have amongst Jews a well-known significance—a reference to the Messiah—and he is actually claiming to be the Messiah. For what it's worth.
1: And there may be one passage that uh, there may be more than this. There may be one exception to to Randy's observation. Uh, he says that, that Jesus nor his disciples explains what they means by this. You might think about Matthew 16, uh, where Jesus uh, asks his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And uh, as they go through the different options, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter, I think, gives this answer, who is the, who is the Son of Man? You know the Christ, the Son, of the Living God. Yeah, it might even be helpful to see that Son of Man. What? Who does? Who do men say that the Son of Man is? The Son of the, the Son of the Living God.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting. That's good. All right. If you have other comments, questions, our viewers, um, please get them to us. We appreciate the the input that we've had so far today. Uh, we got a few minutes left. We ready to get in another one of these questions, Joe? That would be excellent. Are we going to get to the? questions that have to do with uh, the uh, angel of the Lord and that sort of thing? Is that where we're going next?
1: Yeah, I think that'll be good. There's uh, about three questions that are uh, similar in nature and maybe can be answered sort of in combination. Uh, who was the angel of the Lord spoken of in the new, in the Old Testament? And then who was the fourth man in the fiery furnace, referring to the book of Daniel, uh, the third chapter? And then the third question is, who passed over Egypt the night before the Exodus? One scripture says God passed over. Another says an angel or messenger passed over. Okay. But the general question for all three of those would be, in the Old Testament, this description of the angel of the Lord uh, and these this, these individuals that are acting in a capacity of doing something really special Often for the act of saving God's people, okay, um, and there's a lot of debate or discussion on this. I think really healthy debate. For the most part, we may not ever all agree on the conclusions, but to me, it's just helpful to think through and try to process, and even to consider other options. I think it it gives us a fuller sense of, of really who God is, how He works. And uh, how marvelous his plan has always been. So I'm not trying to dodge the actual <laughs> I was just waiting to say, you haven't answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> so not trying to dodge it. I just think that there's even a, a, a greater purpose in even asking those questions. It's just trying to understand who that is and how he works. You
0: have nine minutes of webcast time left. <laughs> you, you, you're going to have to go a lot longer than that to run the clock out. <laughs>
1: so... Uh, I don't have a list of all of those texts that are in question, but you have, I'll just mention a few of them. You have it in the book of Joshua where the commander of the Lord's army appears. Joshua is quite concerned and asks, are you with them? Or are you with us? And he says, no. Um, uh, and he calls himself the angel of the Lord there. Um, uh, you have the Lord appearing to Abraham in Genesis 18, uh, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, three men come. Oh, I should have mentioned in Joshua 5, it's a man that's standing there as far as Joshua's concerned. In Genesis 18, you have three men that come. Two of them go off to Sodom to save Lot and whoever's willing to be saved from his household. And uh, the one that remains behind then begins to have a conversation with Abraham. But from that point on, he's simply identified as the Lord. Yeah. Two men are identified as angels. Mm-hmm. So here is men and, uh, uh, and converse with Abraham, but they're identified later as angels and the Lord.
0: So I'll make this observation, and I don't know that this is applicable in every relevant passage to this discussion, but what you're saying there kind of sets this up. There are a number of places in the Bible where we read about the Lord doing something. And then maybe in another context, referring to the same incident, we'll see that an angel did it. And another example is when, uh, I don't think you mentioned when Moses saw the burning bush yet. But in Exodus, the third chapter, it says in verse uh, 2, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so when Mo- so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then, of course, the famous statement, um, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, but the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Now, I guess one could suppose that, okay, so there was an angel that appeared in the bush, and then God spoke from the bush. However, uh, when we come to the uh, New Testament in Acts, the seventh chapter in verse 30, in Stephen's speech, he speaks of this incident and says, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And then as we come down in the context, he says uh, in verse 37, this is that Moses who said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall God raise up unto you from among your brethren like unto me. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel that spake to him in the Mount Sinai. Well, back in the book of Exodus, when Moses goes to Mount Sinai, God speaks with him. But then it says an angel spoke with him. And then, of course, in Acts 7, verse 53, the law is described as having been ordained of angels, and in Galatians 3, 20, the law is spoken of as having been ordained or delivered by angels, and yet in the Old Testament, it's it's God who gives Moses the tablets of stone and the law. So it seems to me that at least in many of these instances, what we have is God doing something. But he does it through the agency of angels. And you can speak of it either way. John chapter 4, verse 1 says Jesus, the, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then verse 2 says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did. Jesus was doing it. His disciples were doing it at his behest. So he could be said he was doing it, even though he was doing it through his disciples.
1: And so, I think in the final analysis, we may not even be able to determine with great certainty on a number of these texts, absolute 100% certainty, is this the Lord, is it the Lord doing it through another agency, uh, through uh, a a Michael or Gabriel or somebody else, uh, unknown to angel, or is this Jesus, uh, a position that is often taken, think has a lot of validity uh, 1 Corinthians 10 lets us know that the rock that was leading the disciples in the wilderness, the, the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, was Jesus. And so we certainly have the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, if we understand the idea of angel or messenger, uh, angel just being messenger, one being sent, uh, the, that would certainly fit the characteristic of Jesus. But I wouldn't argue that point. I I wouldn't try to to force that unless there's a a text that really just insists on on doing that. Uh, But one of the questions gets more specific with that of the the Exodus.
0: Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go to the fiery furnace one. All right, go to the Exodus one. Yeah, because you had some interesting thoughts about that. Uh,
1: Well, in uh, Exodus 12, we have the story of the the preparation for the... uh, the tenth plague the death of the firstborn Jesus, god telling moses what he needed to have the israelites do uh in putting the door uh, putting the blood on the door and on the lintels and uh, uh then following through that uh through with that and as they are uh going about that in exodus 12 um make sure i get the right passage here in verse 23 it says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, will pass over the, uh, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And so the Lord was going to pass through the land to strike the Egyptians. But then at the end of that verse, he talks about the destroyer being the one who's going to do that. I think that would be a case where God has appointed an angel to go forth, death angel is all uh, identified as, uh, to go through and destroy those firstborn or, or to, uh, yeah, to, to kill those firstborn. But then the idea of the Lord seeing the blood and he's going to pass over the, uh, the door and not allow the destroyer to come into those houses where we get the word Passover. The the Lord is going to pass over those houses. But there are a few passages, I think, that maybe help us to get a better picture of exactly what God is doing there. I'll just read quickly Isaiah 31.5
0: to
1: to the Passover. But Isaiah 31.5, talking about God's gracious deliverance, says, like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. And so the idea of passing over here, uh, it's essentially the same word. It comes from the root word. Uh, the idea of passing over is not skipping over and like missing that. Like we might think of children skipping and jumping over a crack or something like that. I believe that the idea is that he's passing over to, to cover that house, to protect that house so that the destroyer won't come through. It really portrays God in the, the merciful sense for those who have the blood of the Lamb.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know, but I do notice that in Isaiah 31.5, the New American Standard, which translates like flying birds, has a footnote that says, like hovering birds. So right. the host will protect Jerusalem and then uses the language he will pass over and rescue. So that's an interesting thought. I, I don't, I don't know about that. So thanks for the, thanks for sharing, Joe. Sure. Well, that, that gets us down to the end of our webcast for today. Uh, we want to thank those of you who watched or those of you who are watching the recording, the recorded version of this uh, after the fact, thank, thank you to those of you who sent us questions during the webcast today and comments and thanks to Noah for the technological help of getting this thing going each each week. See you next week, Lord willing, Joe.
1: Amen. Thank you, Jeff.